The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, June 25th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So a little later on the show, this show, I will discuss the discussion about civility in my patented spiel segment. Patent not pending. In fact, registered, trademark, not registered. So one of the points that I will make is encapsulated in the following tweet. And this tweet basically is a genre of tweets that come up in my feed, the genre being Mike Pesca is a moron. I do not know why so many people are into this genre. Is this like uh, the new unboxing video of tweets? But anyway, here it goes. Tweeter says, smart segment by at Chris Jansing and at MSNBC about political division in the US. At Pesca me is such an ideologue that he does not hear. Hashtag Hollywood is cumulatively harming at DNC, period. Denying it doesn't help fix rhetorical flaws at Perez Hilton. I do not know what Perez Hilton has to say about any of this. I suppose he'll one day draw a penis on my face. I'll take that in good humor. But here's the thing about Hollywood harming the DNC. The DNC, that is the Democratic National Committee. So that includes the state party chairs, governors, big city mayors, representatives, senators, a few ex-presidents, probably their family. And that's who the Dems are. Okay, there are probably some other prominent movers and shakers that if they said something stupid, it would harm the Democrats. If the, if the state chairman of Ohio said, fuck Trump, that would be something. It wouldn't be nothing. I could see Democrats saying, hey, guy, we don't say that around here unless we're talking about Bo Schembechler. But if Hollywood or hashtag Hollywood, and I'm wondering who is Hollywood that's clicking on hashtag Hollywood to say, ooh, they're talking about me. But if Hollywood is hurting the DNC. Well, that means the DNC is being held to account for a whole lot of people that it didn't even know were in the tent. You got De Niro and Sam B. You got every late night comedian. You got, I guess, if you're going to include all the late night comedians, now Fallon's in the group. You got all their writing staff. You got the entire on-air staff of CNN and MSNBC. I mean, basically at this point where, you know, touching a thousand people. But listen to this. Last year in Hollywood, there were 487 scripted series, 487. So if they each have a showrunner, if they each have, let's say, two producers, they have more than that, but let's ascribe two producers and four leads, that's 3,000 people, all right? What about the movies? Let's just look at the Directors Guild. They represent 16,000 people. And while we're at it, since we're talking about Hollywood, we're talking about the media, the Newspaper Guild counts 25,000 members. And, you know, a lot of journalists aren't even unionized, but some in the Newspaper Guild, all they really do is craft the jumble at the Minneapolis Star Tribune. So let's call it the 25,000 in the Guild. So if you add nonfiction TV, fictional movies, just the directors, not the crew, the news media... We are talking upwards of 45,000 people. So the DNC has to answer for 45,000 people. And wait, I haven't even gotten to the job that Kathy Griffin has because she was one of those people who supposedly turned off Trump voters. So if you add all the comedians and the musicians, what about the musicians? Ludacris, the Dixie Chicks, Kanye in odd number years. We're talking 50,000 people who could be said to be Hollywood and therefore have the power to tip the balance in Trump's favor with an intemperate tweet or an infelicitous phrase. 
So here are the rules of the game if you're worried about civility. So Democrats, what Democrats have to do is they have to point out that the Trump administration is a lying, thieving, backwards embarrassment. And that could work. And then they maybe could retake the House if they convince Americans of that. But that complaint can be neutralized should Republicans point out that any one of the 50,000 comedians, reporters, and actors have transgressed, said something mean about the lying, thieving, backwards embarrassment that is the actual administration actually making the laws. And of course, that 50,000 does not include every restaurateur in the greater D.C. area. On the show today, we revisit the great civility debate. And we'll do it all nice like, see? But first, from the Orange Empire to the Sanguine One, it is an empire on blood. We're joined by the host of a podcast that tells the story of one of the 90s biggest drug lords. He was simultaneously one of the Bronx's most notorious criminals, yet least guilty of the specific crime that sent him to jail. Empire on Blood is a seven-part series that deals with the false conviction of Calvin Buari. Now, Calvin Buari was a criminal. He was a drug dealer, but that doesn't make him a murderer. And in seven episodes, Steve Fishman, the reporter who got to know Cal over many, many years, teases out his forays into the justice system. Steve Fishman is here with me to talk about his Panoply series, Empire on Blood. Hello, Steve. Thanks for coming in again. Thanks for having me. How'd you get to know this guy first? off. Well, it's a phone call. It comes to me at home one night. There's that kind of weird recorded voice. You have a collect call from a New York State Correctional Institution. And then there's this guy I'd never met. I'd heard about him. We had a mutual friend, acquaintance, who uh, a former prisoner who walked the prison yard with Cal, who said to me, uh, you know, I think this guy's innocent. I said, all right, well, have him give me a call. But just one more note of background is I had been a reporter for New York Magazine for a long time, so I'd written about Son of Sam and Madoff, a wrongful conviction. So every now and then I got letters from prisoners who were saying they're innocent, um, as is every prisoner. Uh, so I was pretty skeptical when this phone call comes, but then Cal kind of launches into this monologue about stolen files and missed evidence and witnesses who lied, and he is running a campaign for his freedom. He's in prison for 50 years to life. He's running a campaign for his freedom from a prison payphone. I just, I just know and I just tell myself this just can't be my destiny. You know, and I just keep my hope alive, you know, and I just keep moving forward, you know, and trying to fight my case. And I just believe that, you know, one day, man, the truth is going to come to the light. And there's something that I find incredibly compelling about that. And I say, listen, I don't jump in here. I say, okay, send me the transcripts. Right. So he strikes you first off as a compelling character. Doesn't mean he's innocent. Doesn't mean anything actually about his real character. But his personality, there's something about his personality that hooks you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So this guy, the the, the main guy, the main prosecution witness is Dwight Robinson, who's like uh, Cal's right-hand man in the drug trade. He is a guy who, four years younger than Cal, deals Cal's drugs, 
is a good earner and he loves Cal. He idolizes Cal. He dresses like him. He sometimes speaks like him. And then one day he feels spurned by Cal. He feels like Cal has chosen someone over him. Now, Dwight is also at the same time an ambitious guy. Mm -hmm. That combination is a bit explosive. Dwight feels spurned. On the other hand, he says, you know, why do I need Cal? I did a lot for that man. You know what I mean? I, he had to admit it. I kept him in power. Like I said, at one time, I was his number one money maker. It got to a point where he started felt like he got to slow me down. And, you, you know, Mike, uh, there, there's this one twist where, and I won't fully give it away, but... Dwight goes to prison for 25 to life for a different murder. They're both in the New York State correctional system. By some mistake, the corrections department puts Cal and Dwight in the same prison. So now you have the guy who essentially put Cal in prison for life, put these guys on a collision course and plot starts to happen. So it seems like uh, one theme, an unstated theme of your story is different people operating on different codes and maybe a bunch of people who could define what they do as uh, either ethical or doing what they have to do to survive. So maybe Cal's right that the system is out to get him or that the system uh, twisted itself in unfair ways to get him. There's another character, and this is the prosecutor, the original prosecutor who you define as Turtle Man <laughs> because not, not how he looked, but the fact that he liked turtles. You don't say that he's acting out of bounds or unethically. He's acting within the constraints that he's operating under. And then even Dwight, who's the antagonist of the story, he has his own motivations and I guess is doing what's right for Dwight. I think that's true. You know, you have a clash of uh, good intentions. Uh, <laughs> well, well, yeah. yeah. You have a clash of interest. You have a clash Survival, of intentions. Yeah. You know, like different worlds, different motivations. But, you know, Turtle Man, I think in the end, a listener will wonder if maybe he was a bit overzealous, mm -hmm. right? The crusader, maybe crusading uh, a bit too quickly in this particular case. But which is listen. one thing which is one thing in the New York of three hundred murders a year as opposed to the New York of two thousand murders a year, which was going on when, when Calvin was convicted. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Listen, we look at it through today's lens. Exonerations are in the air. They happen uh with uh somewhat alarming frequency. Uh, I say alarming because you can't imagine that these these people were actually wrongly convicted. So, but I, we have come to accept that cops make mistakes, maybe sometimes intentionally, maybe sometimes just really because people make mistakes. The stakes are incredibly high, and and that's kind of where it feels a bit perverse. But you know, in in the nineteen nineties, when Cal is convicted and Turtle Man is in the midst of his reign, I mean there are. 2,000 murders a year. One year, there's 2,200 murders a year. I mean, New York is, is not only unmanageable, and don't forget, there's a lot of financial strain on the city at that point, but it feels like, as one guy said to me, we might lose the city. So in a lot of the convictions that have been overturned, a lot of the famous ones, especially the death row cases, and that's not Cal, there's DNA evidence, because DNA evidence is scientific and hard to argue with. That wasn't the case here. Uh, how unusual is it to just go back and sort of re-question a bunch of eyewitnesses and the motivations of the prosecutor? It's not really typical. I mean, the the 
criminal justice system wants finality. It does not want to review its own. Now, there's something of a a movement now. We have a new generation of prosecutors. Actually, in New York, we have people of color. And there is a kind of different regard for uh, how justice went in the past. But, you know, I think also the other thing is, besides the fact that the, the times are different, DNA is over. I mean, all of those cases, with a few exceptions, but really virtually all of those cases are done. So We've gotten to the low-hanging fruit. We, 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 all the low-hanging fruit is gone. And, it, you know, if you talk to the Innocence Project, they're on to bite marks and false confections, and they, they've really kind of moved on. And yeah. so Cal's case, like a bunch of the exoneration cases we're seeing now, they're really difficult because you have to get witnesses to recant. You have to get witnesses to admit that they perjured themselves theoretically. Right, and then you have, as you have a scene in the series, are you lying then or were you lying now? And that's a lot different from a bite mark that where the forensics seems to be highly questionable or a DNA case. Yeah, and so we have Dwight, Cal's former protege. He's actually tries to murder Cal. I mean, this is a kind of a rage that takes over him. And listen, what I'm proud of in Empire on Blood is all of the people involved narrate their scenes. So mm-hmm. so Dwight tells me how he sat up in the bushes and tried to kill Cal. Now, then there's a, a, a summer. There are eight shootings on this one corner where Cal deals drugs. Cal and Dwight deal drugs. And it, 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 it earns the nickname corner on blood and the cops form a task force they call dwight in they talk to him about this attempted murder of cal by the way cal lives obviously and there's a moment where dwight says you know they want me but i think they want cal more you know whether you think in the end that he's guilty or not guilty You know, I think Cal's going to be fine on the outside. He spent 22 years. He changed. I mean, he went into prison. He was 24. So he became an adult in prison. And one of the things Cal taught himself was a new set of skills. He becomes patient. You know, being a drug dealer is also always about instant gratification. Cal walked around in mink coats and BMWs. And uh, that's not the daily fare in in prison. So there's a he learns delayed gratification. I mean... It's enforced, but he embraces it and he starts to build an entire new skill set. And I think that 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 very clearly served him well in prosecuting his case from his side. But also, you know, it, it set him up with skills for life. So, you know, if you believe it all in rehabilitation, I, I Cal's a candidate. Steve Fishman is the host, narrator, journalist, impresario behind the Panoply podcast series, Empire on Blood. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Mike. That was fantastic. And now the spiel, civility, ah, civility. In Afrikaans, beliefthide. In Icelandic, haverskju, which has more the meaning of modesty or being unassuming. And what are we if we are not civil? We are no better than the animals, except perhaps the civet. You know what civets love? They love to find things that give off a strong aroma. 
and then mark these things with their own powerful scent gland, which is located near their genitals. Which brings me to the president of the United States and his pissing all over the Red Hen restaurant. Quote, the Red Hen restaurant should focus more on cleaning its filthy canopies, doors, and windows, badly needs a paint job, rather than refusing to serve a fine person like Sarah Huckabee Sanders. The president tweeted, indicating that his press secretary had at least eaten a cheese course in a filthy restaurant. Infested. So the cries of incivility filled the air, as did the whiff of huevos. Fox 5 DC was on the scene. Hey, good morning, Allison. Steve, yes, there's a lot of passion, controversy, and quite frankly, ignorance. This is the Red Hen DC has nothing to do, except sharing a name, with the restaurant in uh, Lexington, Virginia. But take a look what happened over the weekend. We've been in touch with Michael Friedman, the chef owner here, and he said he had to do some cleaning up. And you can see uh, the front door here is cleaned up because, uh, look at this, it looks like the place had been egged overnight. That's egg yolk, and you see it coming all across here, and even here dripping on the, uh, the ledge here at the front window. So Yes, an egging. Local restaurant egged. Let's hope, given the restaurant's farm-to-table aesthetic, it was at least a cage-free egging. I don't know. Perhaps the chickens were allowed to wear ankle bracelets. The situation was so fraught that the local anchorman anchoring the story had to quote an industry great. You never think you see a quote from Ron Burgundy, but that escalated quickly, Bob. Brick Tamlin there is right. And by everything that's happened, we mean forced child separations and the concomitant rudeness to those who forced the children to be separated. Not only was the White House mouthpiece denied a chance to fill her pie hole, but the architect of the policy, Kirsten Nielsen, was heckled out of a Mexican restaurant, as was Stephen Miller, reportedly berated in a D.C. Mexican restaurant. The New York Post had that story, which doesn't mean it didn't happen. Add to this Florida politician Pam Bondi's being heckled at a movie, and add to that fact that the movie was the Mr. Rogers documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Ugh, terrible optics. Yeah, you could see the argument, at least you could see the argument, that the Democrats, by going low, when they go low, playing into the hands of the Trump administration. But I have to, once again, direct you to the terms of the debate. The Democrats. This is the argument being made by conservatives, that if you are mean to the Trump administration, it comes with a grave cost. But there is a flaw in their reasoning. Who are the victims? Who are the victims of this interplay? The victims are the members of the Trump administration, the very people making the policy. So who are the victimizers? It seems to be everyone in America who disapproves of Trump. If we want to say just Hollywood, then what's a heckling crowd in Florida? What's a restaurateur in D.C. doing as part of that definition? So everyone who disapproves of Trump, which statistics and polls show is most people in America actually disapprove of Trump. That means that anyone can screw the midterms for the Democrats. Could be a crowd of people at a movie theater. Could it be a crowd of people at a restaurant? They're all the Democrats. Could be the owner of a 26-seat restaurant in rural Virginia. Yeah, that's the Democrats. Samantha Bee's the Democrats. Robert De Niro's the Democrats. So perhaps the voting booth, I don't know, maybe citizens will hold accountable policymakers and policy defenders who are affecting their lives. Or maybe, and here's the alternative theory, maybe they'll hold to account some guy, a crowd, the star of Meet the Fockers, the host of the 16th highest rated show on cable on Wednesdays. And I'm not speaking of Guy Fieri because Guy's Grocery Games is actually higher rated than Samantha B's show. So maybe it'll happen. Maybe randos in a restaurant are going to cost the Democrats the election. Maybe voters are that dumb. 
or maybe we're that tribal. And maybe Sarah Huckabee being 86 from the Red Hen will let the Republicans keep the House. And if it doesn't, I am sure that all the people who predict that it would will say, you know what? Sorry about that. We engaged in unfounded social science. Now, I will say this. If I were in the hospitality industry, I would be hospitable even to Sarah Sanders, even to Stephen Miller. And by the way, geniuses, if you kick them out of your restaurant, you can't spit in their food, can you? And also, I want to make clear that I find fault with one Democrat, one actual Democrat, because she is, so far as I can tell, the only actual political figure who is not a restaurant owner or star of bad grandpa who is advocating this sort of harassment. Representative Maxine Waters has been out supporting the widespread, I don't know, cat-calling and mischief-making at the expense of cabinet members. For these members of his cabinet who remain and try to defend him, they're not going to be able to go to a restaurant. They're not going to be able to stop at a gas station. They're not going to be able to shop at a department store. The people are going to turn on them. They're going to protest. They're going to absolutely harass them until they decide that they're going to tell the president, no, I can't hang with you. This is Maxine Waters in a Keeping Family Together rally didn't just predict these things would happen like you heard in that clip there she advocated that they should happen and i would suggest an alternative approach to that i would not heckle a secretary of homeland security i would try to vote her out of office that's just me but do i think it is a decline in civility i do not to me i think it's stasis It is not a decline. It is a reflection of the decline that has occurred. And why has the decline occurred? Oh, I don't know. A certain reality show counterpuncher who campaigns by giving every opponent a derogatory name. Wacky Jackie has... You don't want her. You don't want her as your senator. People that know her, that's what they call her. Wacky Jackie. That's what you want for your senator? She wants to raise taxes. And I think somebody said she's in Nevada right now campaigning with Pocahontas. It's not that useful to get into contests of who started it. The culture was coarse two years ago. The culture was coarse five years ago. But back then, was the White House the epicenter of that coarseness or a respite from it? Maybe you don't put the Obamas on a pedestal. Maybe you are a conservative who thinks that a lot too much was made of the Michelle Obama claim when they go low, we go high. Okay, I'll give you that. Maybe the White House wasn't an oasis, but it was far from a cesspool. So you know the old expression about wrestling with a pig, you both get dirty and the pig likes it? There's a similar expression that exists about civets, but they are less culturally relevant, so moving on. The other downside of wrestling with a pig is that what with all the mud flying around and the flailing arms and the, and the, and the, and the snouts and the corkscrew-shaped tails, it's hard to assess who the instigator was. But in order to do any experiment, you have to isolate the variables. So let's, let's do this. Let's take a couple of figures in our coarsened culture who are civil, who the vast majority of us would agree are civil, Oprah and the Pope. One is a religious leader revered by billions. The other is the Pope. (laughs) Also, Trump, Donald Trump, called Oprah very insecure. He says he hopes Oprah runs. She didn't say she was going to run, but he hopes she runs so she can, this is his quote, be exposed and defeated. On the Pope, the Pope we're talking about 
not of Greenwich Village, of the Vatican, the Pope Pope, Trump used the word disgraceful to describe him. Trump said the Pope lacked grace. Trump said that of the Pope. Trump said the Pope was being used as a pawn by Mexico. Here's a quote. If and when the Vatican is attacked by ISIS, Trump said, the Pope can have only wished and prayed that Donald Trump would have been president because this would not have happened. Let us for a second put all those wackadoo tenses aside. But let us also note that we are being led down a dark path for sure, a path towards societal rudeness, and I don't think it's the Pope's fault. Thankfully, unlike Maxine Waters, almost all the actual Democrat officials that I have heard from are saying the right thing. Nancy Pelosi said we could vehemently oppose Trump's policies without resorting to mob rule. And on Face the Nation, Representative Elijah Cummings said this. First of all, I think as far as the restaurant incident, I think the uh, restaurant owner should have served her. I I really do. Um, But this tone is horrible. But again, I think President Trump has created this. Um, since he's become president, even before, he's basically given people license to uh, to state things that are ugly, and those things then turn into actions, as we can now see. And Cummings' answer lays the saving grace, but also the damning words. And they are about words. When Trump's words turn into action, they fail, and they fail for all to see. On domestic policy, they fail immediately. They fail spectacularly. Three iterations of travel bans, poorly constructed, widely protested against. I think tariffs might be in that category, certainly border separations. Words that lead to actions usually don't work out well for Donald Trump. So what Donald Trump does is he sticks to words because he thinks words don't have the consequence of backlash and unpopularity that his actions have had. He believes the words will excite the base, but won't lose him votes. And maybe he's right, but also the words do have this other quality that we're witnessing, and it's that they make everyone else's actions less civil. I can live with that, but it would be nice if I didn't have to. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by, well, a a ragtag allotment of youngsters and perhaps over-the-hill veterans. Daniel Schrader got the start, but Wiley Vet, Mary Wilson, after her big ceremony, we put her number up in the rafters, she chipped in too. And then there was Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast. He was on hand wondering who the hell ordered rafters in a single floor office. The gist, sneaking into your hearts, donning a fake mustache and a hoodie since 2014. Oomperu depru dupru, and thanks for listening.